If Davy Burns starts running lads with the ball, there's absolutely no chance of me catching him. I don't think if I drove a Fiesta after him, I'd catch him. <laughs> the Football Pod with Paddy and Andy. Download the OTB Sports app and subscribe to the GAA podcast feed now. The OTB Podcast Network. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now, great to have you with us for the Sunday Papers this afternoon. I'll start by running you through the back pages. As you can imagine, Leicester City dominates. So we have the Mail on Sunday here and it's Fairy Tale 2, Leicester's Cup Triumph. Deals a blow to the arrogance of the big six. There was a lot of that yesterday, wasn't there? Leicester, great football club, run the right way. That was the BBC line and it's uh, continued on the papers today. So Leicester, Fairy Tale 2, say the Mail on Sunday. Sunday Mirror Sport have for you, Vici, a picture of Leicester City's late owner. Obviously, his son was at the ground yesterday, came down onto the pitch. Very emotional for him, I'm sure. This was, if you missed it, obviously, uh, Leicester winning the FA Cup yesterday against Chelsea by a goal to nil. And a brilliant goal it was too, as uh, touched on on the back page of the Sunday World, Leicester Ferry Teal, Tielemans with the goal. An amazing strike from outside the box, if you didn't see it. Emotional scenes at Wembley as Foxes lift FA Cup for the first time. They'd been to four finals, Leicester. Never won it before yesterday. Sunday Times, Foxes by a whisker. A great shot of Wes Morgan and Casper Schmeichel lifting the trophy yesterday. Team celebrating behind them. And then Sunday Independent go with Hurling instead on their uh, front page, hanging on tight. Old rivals, this is Cork and Tipperary yesterday in the league. Uh, share the spoils as Tip keep fight alive to the end. And then beneath that, Brennan Rogers. Rogers salutes his most fantastic foxes. We have the sun then, Vavar, boom. Again, it's the FA Cup final yesterday. Late video drama after Yuri Tielemans' rocket. And there was serious drama at the end. It looked for all intents and purposes as if Chelsea had scored an equaliser late on and then VAR intervened and that was a big moment in the game. And then finally, The Observer. Again, it's uh, Wes Morgan and Casper Schmeichel. Fantastic Foxes is the headline. The two players lifting the trophy. Very happy to say we have Rory O'Connor of the Irish Independent with us. We have Shane Keegan, League of Ireland manager, amongst many other things, recently departed at Dundalk. Uh, gents, you're both very welcome. I watched the FA Cup final yesterday. I really enjoyed it, actually, but I hadn't. Uh, I didn't read too many of the match reports, kind of flicked through them. You both in our little WhatsApp group mentioned Ollie Holt. What was good about this, Shane? Yeah, look, I suppose, first of all, Joe, it was just great to get a, an FA Cup final that kind of really had a sense of occasion about it and, and really kind of had a sense of, of meaning and two teams that that desperately wanted to win it. Um, you know, there's enough been wrote about how, how the FA Cup has, has certainly demised in, in importance over, over years. But look, I suppose, first and foremost, it, it was the return of fans that added so much to the occasion. And there's no doubt that it did. I mean, it's, it's not... It's not been overly hammed up, I don't think. It, it, it did lend a serious, serious difference to it and it did make everybody kind of sit up and take notice and everybody kind of, you know, think this is great to, to, to have fans back. And, and Ollie Holt, has, I suppose he's just done quite well to, to, to put that picture across. I wouldn't have known heading into the weekend either that Leicester had never won it. So you have got the, um, the underdog tale that feeds nicely into it. Now, 
that's probably been hammed up a little bit. You know, this whole thing of blow, blow to the big six, Joe, I'm pretty sure they're seventh in terms of wages um, in the Premier League. So it's not it's not quite this massive, massive giant killing that's been portrayed as either. Um, but no, there is. There, there was a lot of nice narratives around yesterday. Um, they were still underdogs, absolutely, and the fact they'd never won it before. Then, obviously, you've you've, you've had the incident in recent years with with the, with the chairman, and it was it was nice. It, you couldn't help but smile when you saw the chairman's son on the field joining in into the celebrations, um, and that kind of thing. And 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 I suppose just proper celebrations, Joe. Like the Leicester players, like properly properly celebrated. This was a big big moment for them. They were they were really overjoyed when the final whistle went and. I can't remember the last time I saw a cup final where where players reacted like that at the final whistle, and Ollie just Ollie just encapsulated it all very very well. I mean, you know, um, never had never had seen Leicester players throwing themselves to the turf in unrestrained joy at the final whistle. Fence felt so stirring, and and he's right, he's right, you know. Um, so yeah, look, it was just it was it was a different, a very very different cup final, and to be honest with you, the overall quality over the course of ninety minutes wasn't fantastic. But it had moments, mm. and and an F, that's what an FA Cup final needs. An FA Cup final, you know, a fantastic flowing football that ends in a you know a one nil win without any key moments is likely to be forgotten much quicker than a drab enough general game. But with a goal like Tillman's goal and two saves like Schmeichel's saves, that will live a lot longer in the memory than 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 the other uh, type of final, you know. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Rory. I must say, I mean, I think our vintage increasingly can remember the 1990s FA Cup finals far better than the last decade, whereas yesterday did feel a bit memorable. Yeah, absolutely. I Like, the, the management of the FA Cup at, and the cult of the Premier League is just, I think it's terrible. Like, I, I the, the idea of finishing fourth and qualifying for another tournament is better than winning a trophy in, in Wembley. It just doesn't make any sense to me as a sports fan. And, and it's just taken it's become the kind of um just the, the the kind of accepted norm at this stage i know the money is there but like you, the fact like watching gary lineker um presenting the bbc coverage and not being able to speak and then just kind of touching on the fact that his dad that he just hoped his dad was able to, his late father who'd been to the four uh lost cup finals um uh, as a fan mm. as a leicester fan like Gary Lineker, like Leicester, may well finish in the Champions League this year, but I mean that doesn't that'll give them six six group games, maybe a run at the a run at the um, the, the the knockouts and, and a few memories, but it won't give them what at the fans what they got yesterday. Those players will now have a piece of a piece of gold in their pockets that that, that no one can ever take away from them, and that shouldn't be diminished. Like that's what sport's supposed to be about. Like you can only win three to four tournaments. Like Leicester were entered in three tournaments this year, they've won one of them. Like that should be. Like the league is obviously the be all and end all, and, and it's your bread and butter, all of that sort of stuff. But the, the FA Cup shouldn't have been diminished, and and I think the fact that they were able to get their ducks in a row to get fans into the stadium for this game gave it a prestige that it's lost in the last um, yeah. decade or you know decade or, or decade and a half or so. And and it, I hope it's not a once off. I hope it, it it's not lost. I mean, I I didn't see the full game. I. I Happily, half time in at Longford Bowes coincided with the last fifteen minutes of the uh, hmm. of the FA Cup final, so I was able to switch off my um, gloomy one camera watch LOI stream uh, for a few minutes and uh, tune into the bright lights of Wembley and a crowd and you know going from an empty stadium and I don't know what Longford Stadium is called anymore. I still call it Flancair Park, whatever whatever it's called now. They like an emptied Flancair Park with one camera to this like Technicolor and fans crying and. Hmm. It just 
looked like real sport again and I can't wait. It just I just can't wait. I know I'm I am lucky enough to be in stadiums and and there and I I feel privileged to be at, at Tolman Park on Friday night, even though it was the Rainbow Cup and there was no one there. Um, but I just can't wait to be in Dailyman Park or Crow Park again with fans there. I can't wait to cover a rugby match with fans there. I hope the Ireland matches this summer will have fans there. You know, it just looked real again. Yeah. Um, I'm sick of empty stadiums. I mean, we put up with it. You know, it's grand, but God, July can't come quick enough. Um, it's already too late but uh, you know they, they, they just need to get this trial underway and get fans back in stadiums because that looked amazing yesterday I did no there's no doubt lots of GAA as well we're up and running in GAA so I'll come to Joe Brawley on David Clifford in a moment Kerry beat Galway 4-21 to 11 points that's an eye-catching result uh, by way of getting there though Marco Shea page 77 of the Mail on Sunday he's basically writing about Kieran Nagini and Armagh and Nagini in action with Armagh for the their Division 1 opener this afternoon first time back in the uh, top tier in some time but he's just talking about McGinney the player a little bit and it's just a funny intro more than anything just to mention so he's talking about Colin Cooper back in 02 I think a lot of us remember Colin Cooper when he was 18-19 super skinny coming up against that Armagh team in 02 uh, he ran into Kieran McGinney which was like watching a Honda 50 having a head-on collision with the juggernaut is what Marcus Shea says uh, at that moment, there must have been more prayers offered up for the well-being of the Gooch and Kerry than in a season of Sundays at the Vatican. But our boy held his ground. He waited until McGinney turned his back. Then he momentarily dropped to his haunches in a bid to ease the pain. And while he concealed his discomfort from McGinney, the rest of us saw it and used it against him in the court of hijinks over succeeding years. Any time Colin Cooper took an innocuous bang in training, he would never be short of comforting advice. Why don't you drop down to your knees there and get your win back? Thing is, in the 06 All-Ireland quarterfinal, I got to feel the Gooch's pain. I took off in a solo, burst up the middle, swallowing up the ground with every stride until I was confronted by McGeady. Still, with my momentum as my friend, I assumed I would brush him aside. Instead, I hit the orange wall. I somehow managed to hang on to the ball, but not my dignity. I was still shook from the collision afterwards in the dressing room when I felt a hand on my shoulder and heard a familiar voice in my ear. Mark Boy, advised Gooch. Why don't you drop to your knees there and get your win back? So it's a really nice intro from Mark O'Shea and he goes on to talk about how McGinney will do with Armagh. Uh, Joe Brawley picks up the mantle then on Kerry's win yesterday. Shane, I know you like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you uh, you, you tweeted out the, the line that I had highlighted already, Joe. Um, his, his, his phrase of the only thing worse than being chosen to lead the DUP has been chosen to mark David Clifford. Um, he then goes on to say Liam Silk got the short straw in the changing room beforehand uh, one one is unlikely to volunteer and looked like a 5 foot 5 white guy being asked to mark or asked to guard Michael Jordan uh, look Joe has as usual away with words although I'd be, I, I don't know how good his German is Joe um, when he tells us that uh, Gergen pressing literally translates as heavy metal football I'm, I'm not, not so sure he's got the uh, direct translation right there in the opening paragraph but I mean you know to look at, at, at the wider take the wider point he's making David Clifford look Joe as uh, Joe as we know is, is is fond of hyperbole from time to time I'm sure he wouldn't mind me saying that but when he says I have written on many occasions that this kid will become the greatest player the game has ever seen yeah. um, he and he provided overwhelming evidence of that again in Tralee 
I mean, I don't think that is hyperbole. I really don't think that is hyperbole. He he is absolutely phenomenal, Joe. He 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 truly, truly is. You know, like I know we're going to touch on 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 Keith Tracy a little later, and you know, you have so many of those stories in in soccer, in in whatever sport of of those talented talented kids who you know, ninety nine percent of them never fulfill the potential. I mean, nobody was been talked up as much as David Clifford, and yet he's he's like he's exceeded expectation. You, arguably below below what he's capable of to a certain extent last year but it looks as though he's he's bouncing back super quickly here i mean yesterday was was you know the array of finishes and joe does well to explain the array of finishes as well They're, all three goals were, were so so different and yet all obviously look the third one was the most eye catching but but even the previous two to that just just fantastic fantastic ability in in so many different facets of the game and you know you, you look back at Obviously, we had we had fantastic senior final in in two thousand and and seventeen. But when I think of two thousand and seventeen, as good and all as as the senior final was, it you still think of two thousand and seventeen as David Clifford in a minor final scoring four four. I mean, it's 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 phenomenal that he could overshadow a, a game of that magnitude. And look, I suppose the one thing I'd, I, I I'd say is you know whatever whatever fight had to be fought. Um, to push back the powers of, of of the AFL and and keep David Clifford on on this soil was was a, a fight that needed to be fought. That's for yeah. sure because their loss has has been uh, football's game. Yeah, for sure. So Kerry score four twenty one and the Gegen pressing, or as uh, Joe Bally says, uh, heavy metal football. He's uh, celebrating Kerry's approach here that they're pressing Galway high up the pitch. It's a state of mind. He says yesterday they gave a masterclass in kick passing with the emphasis of the game plan on attacking. They were transformed. So he really liked what he saw from Kerry and their mindset. But as you said, it's it's about Clifford here, really. He ended up Clifford with 3-6 at 22 years of age. If you didn't see the third goal, you will see it many, many times over the next couple of decades. His hatcher goal, a hilarious, audacious moment that was pure as a Dan, reminded us why life is worth living. Uh, talks about the poor fullback climbed forlornly to his feet with muck all over his face, which just about covered the egg. Uh, he says of Kerry, they've learned you cannot drop back and defend your way to an All-Ireland. Here they pressed high throughout, kept the solar running to a minimum, kicked the ball quickly, accurately as a result. Uh, their skilled forwards thrived and the team was motivated and energetic. A dull game plan produces dull football, hence Galway got precisely what they deserved, is what Joe Brawley is saying. As um, to uh, echo Shane, I saw David Clifford for the first time, Rory, in Crow Park as well. I'd heard the name, I think we'd all kind of heard the name, and I was preparing for the paper review. So you're reading papers and you're on air a little bit and it's suddenly one goal and then two goal and you're, you're glancing up a bit more at this kid, three goal fourth goal and you're stopping reading the papers and you're looking around and you're realising all the hype for once you know what I mean for once is justified and I do remember I won't name the person I do remember someone saying well look that's minor let's see how he gets on at senior before he, <laughs> before <laughs> we get too excited um, a prophecy which hasn't quite come to fruition and uh, I mean there is something so interesting about this the most celebrated underage footballer I can ever remember more than Gooch more than anyone now arriving on the senior scene and instantly looking awesome and getting better with each passing moment it seems 22 years of age this is just so so interesting phenomenal to watch as Joe Bradley says he thinks we're watching the player who will go down as the greatest footballer of all time and uh, God I mean I can't think of 
can't think of too many players who've had that billion for so long and then delivered straight away and so far so good, you know? Yeah, and I think the most interesting part, maybe because of where I'm from, is that he's not on the greatest team of all time. Uh, his mission is to bring down the greatest team of all time. And what Joe talks about in Kerry's tactics is kind of speaks to that kind of mission that he and the rest of his team are on is to ultimately bring down the Dublin juggernaut. And Colin O'Rourke touches on that in his piece and, and Mick Clifford has a piece on Dublin as well. And Dublin Illuminarage over, you know, all of the GA coverage and, you know, Joe Brody talks about, you know, Dublin's tactics as well and how they perfected this, his idea of GAA gagging pressing. And it's, if Kerry are to do this and to they do look like the most likely team to do it, Clifford will be central to that. And Dublin have shown that, you know, or sorry, he has shown that he's been able to trouble that Dublin juggernaut in, in the past and the 2020 All the Drawn All Ireland final, which one of the greatest games I've ever attended, um, a day when Kerry did press high and, and did bring the fire to Dublin and, and then seemed to get scarred by the, the replay game, which kind of their tactics, which followed that, seemed to spoil last year. Brolly is suggesting that maybe they've come out of that bug after losing to Cork and, and they've re, uh, reassessed where they're going with it. And, you know, the scoreline they put up yesterday and the way they freed Clifford to do it. I didn't see the game, but obviously he scored that much. They must have freed him to some to some point. Um, bodes well for their for that mission that they're on. And, yeah, he's pretty compelling. Without I haven't, don't remember really hearing him speak very much or reading much about him, but he, without ever giving any, you know, I don't I don't know a whole lot about him as a person, but the player himself with between the white lines is compelling enough. He he he's worth watching whenever mm. Kerry are playing. Like you tune in to see what he's going to do next, and that's what sports people really it should be all about. You yeah. know, he defines himself within the white lines. And his brother scored a goal yesterday as well. Yeah, it's kind of extraordinary and similar kind of technique. It was interesting. There's certain angles, body angles that are very very similar because Clifford's technique is very much his own. He's quite an eye catching player. Very um striking and it was interesting the brother had sort of similar angles of attack so that's Kerry and that's Clifford and that's going to be a big story this summer for sure let's move to something totally different page 8 and 9 of the Sunday Times wow this is a piece this is seriously good I think we can all agree so it's Keith Tracy played for the Republic of Ireland uh, Giovanni Trapattoni gave him six caps uh, one time Ireland winger Keith Tracy opens up about his steep fall from grace. I was drinking every Tuesday, Saturday and probably in between. Uh, Keith Tracy is one of these names, Shane, you would have been very familiar with, I suspect. I I wasn't as aware of him as Anthony Stokes underage. And then, you know, I remember him going OK at Blackburn and um, championship kind of level. And he's not watching championship matches week in, week out and seeing him occasionally for Ireland. But I didn't realise he was such a huge prospect and I didn't realise all that was going on in the background. I don't know if this is all news to you or not, but, you know, he talks about uh, as a teenage talent, this is Paul Rowan in the Sunday Times, Tracy was only second in the country to Anthony Stokes, two months his senior. And uh, it's quite funny. He talks, you know, at underage Ireland get ups, there'd be all the rumours that, you know, Stokesy's ma got a washing machine and a dryer. Stokesy's ma got a car you know, from the uh, scouts and the agents turning up. The scouts would come to my house and my ma being my ma would say, can we have a car? And you'd think they'd say no, but they'd promise to have a word. Uh, he went over to Blackburn at 15. Keith Tracy, Graham Souness was the manager there. It seems at Black Blackburn they thought this boy is going to be the next Damien Duff. Give him what he wants. I was supposed to go to college Monday and Wednesday, but I never did. The club was fined two and a half grand, but that was peanuts in the Premier League. Like I said, he went on, played some great football at Preston under Giovanni Trapattoni, won the six caps. 
where we meet Keith Tracy now is he's 32 years of age and he's doing gardening three days a week at a Jesuit retreat in Dollymount. And as Paul Rowan says, a decade ago, he had gardeners of his own when he was uh, playing for Sheffield United on loan from Blackburn. He had a big house, swimming pool, jacuzzi, little bridge over a pond, two different garages. I thought Blackburn would say no so I could go back to the club, but they gave me a rent allocation of two grand a month. There was one party after we, we beat Sheffield Wednesday where we ended up going to a nightclub and then partying back at the swimming pool. Tracy confesses to addictions in alcohol, gambling and sex. The old saying in football is you can do it at the right time, but I was doing it every time. So I'll let you pick it up there, Shane, whatever jumped out to you. It, like incredibly honest account of a player who just uh, couldn't cope with those addictions and fell out of football when it seems really he had an amazing career in front of him. Retired at the age of 24 here, Keith Tracy. I, I hadn't been a, a, as aware maybe as you were of what was going on behind the scenes. Yeah, look, I suppose a couple of things. Obviously, as a standalone piece, it's, it's, it's brilliant itself. In, in, as we were saying in the WhatsApp group, Derek Rory said, it could have done with a new to, another 2,000 words. You get the feeling there's so much more to be talked about there. Um, but but even just, it's nice to move on to it, having moved off David Clifford, because, the, you know, it is a, a, such an interesting comparison that, OK, the likes of David Clifford has to live up to the, to the hype. Um, but that's you know, there aren't a huge amount of other stumbling blocks for him to, to overcome as opposed to this kind of lifestyle. A 15-year-old, you know, heading off across the water. I mean, even before he's gone across the water, as, you, as you've said, stuff been thrown at him. Um, and it's just, you know, you can you can completely understand why, you know, a chap from, from inner city Dublin, you know, you, you know could you, you look at the background and, and growing up and that kind of thing, and then you're pulled from that scenario over there where, Money has been thrown at you. This ridiculous house has been thrown at you. Like the drinking culture, because we're we're not going back. Like we're not going back to the nineties here, Joe. That, this was the bit that kind of struck me most was particularly when he starts talking about Trapattoni's Irish team. Um, like he got he got six caps under Trapattoni, and and he says there was a there was a huge drinking culture in yeah. in Trapattoni's Irish side. I, that that really, I mean, that's what two thousand and eleven. Um, well, I had thought Andy Reid was turfed out of the squad for good for playing the guitar. And now it turn, turns out they were on the sauce the whole time. So, like he says, every game I played, there was a drinking school before and after the game. When we beat Scotland to win the Carly Nations Cup in May 2011, one of the senior players said this was the only trophy we would ever win with Ireland. So he went in the piss for three days before we played Italy in a friendly in Belgium. I played 20 minutes at the end. We won 2-0. I felt on top of the world. Three days drinking had just been superseded by what I'd done on the pitch. So, yeah. Crazy, crazy stuff, and 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 the other one probably that struck me again is is how much of a lack of duty of care there was for the player. Um, you know, he was talking about his time at at, at Preston when he was going playing very very well, and they were trying to stay up. Um, and he talks about getting getting pain killing injections uh before the game. I didn't train during the week and would just turn up on a Saturday morning and get an injection. This went on for a couple of months. The physio said your arse is like a dartboard, like a dartboard. So they gave me a suppository. Um, I mean, again, you know, you're reading that and it's just hard. Like it is kind of harrowing stuff when, when you think of it like that. Um, and he's look, he's, he, he had it very tough. Look, I think um, I don't know him, know him. Um, I know people who, who certainly would know him. And my first, my only few encounters, obviously coming up along yet, it was very, very, he's 100% right when he says himself and Stokes, they were very much talked about in the same bracket. Um, I remember that from when I was a good bit younger. But yeah, he landed back into the League of Ireland um, 
we, we had gone up with Wexford in 2016 and one of our early games was against St. Pat's and they had signed him. And I remember thinking, Jesus, you know, this fella must really have, have unless this fella has really fallen, he's, he's going to be the best player on the pitch kind of a thing. Um, and look, you know, he's so honest in that article that I'm sure he, he won't mind me saying like he, like he, 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 he practically rolled out onto the pitch, Joe. You know, he, 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 he was an awful size, an awful, awful size. And it was, it was terrible to see for a fella who, who I remembered having looked like a, a young Damien Duff, as he describes himself. So things, you know, they just went so, so wrong for him. Um, and a lot of that obviously is down to, as he reveals towards the end, down to some, some demons he was, he was battling and, Look, football doesn't help itself, Joe. That that's for sure. It really, really doesn't. I mean, you know, so many people would have been willing to turn a blind eye to what was going on with him. I'd also jump on the fact that he he says early on in the piece I was supposed to go to college Monday and Wednesday, but I never did. The club was fined two and a half grand, but that was peanuts in the Premier League. I I think that's a huge, huge thing. I think the lack of duty of care in terms of of, of players' education is is criminal um over there so it is yeah. but uh, there are a couple of people who come out kind of you know with 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 reputations intact or reputations enhanced um mark you mark hughes when i bought my apartment at 17 mark hughes sent me on a six-month cooking course okay that's easy enough done but then follows up with he actually came to the college and i had to cook him a three-course meal i got a little plaque and everything for completing it that's that's very very good on Mark Hughes' behalf. Uh, I think that's really really good. Good shows that he certainly had a bit of care for him. Um, he then also talks about Sean Dyche and how Sean Dyche was was wise to what was going on with him. Now look, he kind of cast him aside, maybe rather than trying to solve it. Um, and then the third name that he mentions is is Eddie Howe and how Eddie Howe did go and try and get professional help for him. Yeah. Now I mean he says. He says he pushed away that professional help because he felt it would always, you know, end up going back to the manager one way or another. Mm. I mean, that certainly should not happen. I mean, you know, professional integrity and, and everything there. If he's talking to a sports psychologist, that, that should never go back as far as the manager. But it leads to him all just finishing by saying, he, I had no social skills. Um, and look, he's in, you know, he's not in the minority there when it comes to, to young players going across the water and, and having everything done for them. Yeah, it really highlights what a dysfunctional industry football is. So much money swirling around and people just ill-equipped to deal with it and not being looked after. So like he does, I mean, it's amazing because you function, you get away with it for a time, not least when you're young. So, you know, he goes from Blackburn to Preston, plays the best football of his career under Darren Ferguson. I was getting an eight out of 10 most of the time, even though I was drinking really heavily. Gets a move on the back of that to Burnley for a million quid. Was on the best money of his career, about 15 grand a week plus match bonuses. Uh, when they were included Burnley get to the Premier League as you said Sean Dyche had a sense what was going on and that was the end there and uh, he talks about the end which as you can imagine is brutal so like 24 years of age turfed out he's uh, it's a calamitous end to the career says uh, Paul Rowan he would be crying in the bath the prospect of his marriage to his long suffering wife uh, going the way of his career he finally committed to sorting his head out and getting help and eventually does uh, nearly four years of therapy and then abstinence from alcohol has certainly changed things. Uh, he discovered that all sorts of demons had been poisoning his system. There was alcoholism in his family. Secrets he had been told before leaving for England that had been buried deep. So he says to Paul Rowan, Keith Tracy, we got to the bottom of what I was running away from and why I wanted to black out every night. It was a family thing. I'd have no problem telling you what it is, but it would affect a lot of people who would probably read this and it would hurt them. End quote. So Paul Rowan says Tracy's back where he was brought up on Sheriff Street in North Inner City. 
Dublin, living in his father-in-law's house. He says, I've no savings. I drank it all, really, which is such a sad thing to read, isn't it? Like to go from 15 grand a week in your early 20s. I've no savings. I just drank it all, really, is a pity. Uh, he's training. It's a lot of drinking, Joe. Yeah, he's training with the Division One club a few nights a week uh, with a view to getting back playing. And he has a young family and he has his gardening to stay grounded. Uh, there are badgers and foxes and rabbits. It's a great space to get your mind into for five hours. You really wish him well. I, I, I just always applaud someone who has reached that level of self-knowledge and honesty and, and worked on themselves and, and come through something like that. And, you know, it seems like he's in a reasonably good place. Uh, Rory, it was you. You said in the WhatsApp group this could e easily handle another 2000 words, you suspect. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the tyranny of the word count. Um fitting this into the page on the, the in the Sunday Times and I'm sure they had plans for you know all the Premier League coverage and all their FA Cup coverage and all that sort of stuff but you would love an editor to just go hang on a second look what we got here and, and give it a bit of space and look I don't know what Paul Rowan has on the tape but it does seem like he's trying to fit an awful lot into a short enough piece I think it's a probably I'm looking at it on their, their app and it looks to me to be about 1,200 words or so and I think it really deserves to breathe a little bit more um, because there's so much in it and it just jumps from one incredible story to another. Mm. It's dark. It's funny at times, you know, like you could easily laugh at the things that happened in his youth, but there's a, it's a dark humor because all of these things are are leading towards this dark finish that you have where, you know, he's walking away from, well, I mean, he didn't walk away from the game. He, he didn't retire. He came back to the league of Ireland, which I think is a, um, you know, it, it didn't work out for him here, but he did give it a go. Um, you know, there's there's so much packed into such a short space. And I think Paul Rowan does a really good job of, of getting it all in there. Um, it's just a pity it didn't get a bit more time to breathe. But yeah. God, it's such a cautionary tale. It's one of those that you want to print out and give to every uh, parent of a uh, promising child at Kevin's and Belvo and all the clubs around Dublin who, who are being tempted by, I know that rules have changed and you know players maybe aren't going over as early, but who are being tempted by the bright lights and being... You know, agents are promising them the world, and you know they're. Don't be thinking about the card that they're offering. Thinking about where your child is going and what they're being offered, and and, and their chances of making it. And it's easy for me to say because I don't have, you know, skin in the, that game, and I can give a kind of a an abstract. What you what this is what you should do when, you know, Man United are in Liverpool and Arsenal are bringing you on tours of the training ground. But, God, there's a lot more to it than the car and the the initial deal there's there's a life to be lived beyond the the, the kind of first contract and it, it's a cautionary tale but it's it's a sadly familiar tale i know it's quite extreme and there's there's quite extremes in it but it keith uh tracy's not the only footballer who's come back from britain broken no and um, some of them get like jack Byrne is a great tale of of a player who's come back and you know bounce back and, and earn a move abroad again danny manjo rovers is 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 flying again having I think, you know, he, he pretended to be drunk at training at Brighton to be allowed to come home and, and you know, has rehabilitated himself at Bowes and has gone on to, um, you know, he's the star of the League of Ireland this year at Rovers. And, you know, if he keeps going the way he's going, he'll get he'll make a really good career out of football. Didn't work out for Keith Tracy. Um, and I think Irish football has a role to play as well. And Owen Hand used to have a job where he would, I think, be a mentor to these players when they were going over and he mm. would try and help assimilate them when they came home. Um, but the way we talk about it, like, you know, the way we talk about the League of Ireland as, uh, you know, if, if you diminish it, then that feeds into the players sense of failure when they come home, um, which is re a real shame because it's, there is a rehabilitation, um, 
role to be played there in in our league and in, in our football here. And it's just it's just, a really really good piece, really thought provoking. Just just on that just on that Joe that that old role that Owen Hand used to have about trying to bring players back in. I I was a little bit late maybe to um to Richie Sadler's book um recovering which which was a fantastic read. I mean my God he strikes me as the absolute perfect person. How the FAI have not got on to Richie Sadler, given the experiences he's had, all the things he's gone through, and now where he's at in his own professional career, how the FAI have not sat down to Richie Sadler and said, listen, here's an ideal role for you. You know, Can you do this for us on a part-time basis or something like that is, is beyond me. I think he would be a perfect fit for helping players coming back home after, after an experience like that. Yeah, yeah. Perfect candidate, isn't he? Yeah, Paul Corey be another one as well. If Richie wasn't interested, he's working with Enda Nolte. He came back from Sheffield Wednesday and had injury problems at Shamrock Rovers and had to retire very early. But is a very um, articulate, intelligent guy. Would you know would have a lot of empathy for those players. So there are guys out there who've done it and have who've made new lives for themselves who could have roles to play in this. And I think Irish football will be all the better for trying to manage these players back. Like Keith Keith Long at Bowes has rehabilitated a lot of players who've come back and, and sent them on the right travel. And some of them will never get back to England, but at least they're, they're footballers still and they're still playing and they're still enjoying it and they're still succeeding. And um, The league is full of stories, maybe not as, um, I don't know, alarming as Keith Tracy's, but there there are there's there's huge potential for pitfalls when players go to England. And, and yeah, this is a fairly cautionary tale, as I said earlier. Yeah, well, this wasn't ancient history. It's amazing how still dysfunctional the whole thing seems to be. Uh, page 60 and 61 of the Mail on Sunday, something totally different. This is Mark Gallagher and Tris Dixon is a guest we've had on the show a few times, really good boxing journalist and writer and he's written a new book and it's probably timely. I don't know if you saw the Billy Joe Saunders, Canelo Alvarez fight last Saturday in Texas, but Alvarez landed an uppercut which broke Billy Joe Saunders. I socket in four different places, horrific injury. You could almost see... Billy Joe Saunders' face collapse in on itself. It is like an indent where the cheekbone is meant to be. Utterly grotesque looking. And Alvarez could see straight away what he had done. He knew the injury he'd caused. And so he put his two hands up in the air and he went in for the kill. Like it's the kind of moment if you're anti-boxing and think it's out of date and needs to be banned and it's brutal, then it was a moment which would have had you kind of looking away in disgust. Needless to say, the 73,000 people in the stadium went ballistic and were enthralled and it was blood sport and uh, Billy Joe Saunders stayed on his stool the the corner obviously realised where he was and said no 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 the fight's over and it was quite striking the commentary team one of them on the zone said when the going got tough Billy Joe stopped was the way it was framed which seemed like just a mad way to put it and even Billy Joe Saunders a couple of months back had called out a Daniel Dubois I think his name was who took a knee with his eye puffed and swollen and Billy Joe Saunders kind of, look, he's a history of saying idiotic things, frankly. And he was saying, look, you'd have to carry me out of there before I'd quit. And here he was several months later, quitting with pretty much uh, same injury or similar kind of issue. But uh, so it's timely in that Tris Dixon has written a book. Or, and I know he's worked on it for the last number of years. It's called Damage, the Untold Story of Brain Trauma in Boxing. Uh, it looks like it's really good. We must try and get him on the show and talk to him about it. Like he's gone back to even... Um, Dr. Harrison Martland. I never knew where the term punch drunk had come from. So it comes from a 1928 study, <coughs> 1928 study into the effects of the fight game. And it was published in the Journal of the American Medical Association. And he coined the term punch drunk. Dr. Harrison Martland, 1928. That's where punch drunk uh, comes from. And uh, 
effectively. You know, I guess it's it's graduated now into what we might call CTE. But the basic thrust of it, Shane, is that, you know, he's, he's talking to lots of different fighters. Leon Spinks, for instance, who died last uh, February. He sat down with him and saw the damage CTE had done to him and his mood swings and his memory and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, uh, Leon Spinks' wife wonders, really, did Muhammad Ali have Parkinson's or did he have CTE? Uh, I don't know the answer to that clearly, but she's wondering that and wondering why Ali and his team never came out and said, look, this is to do with boxing. And it might have been good for the sport if that had happened. But uh, yeah, look, it's fairly harrowing. I mean, they draw comparisons with like the NFL and rugby, whereby things have changed in those sports to try and make them safer. There is a very stark truth for boxing. The point of the sport is to get in there and concuss your opponent. And that will never change. Yeah, and I suppose that was the ultimate point to jump out from it. I mean, nothing here, nothing here should be kind of new news, really, is it? I mean, no. you know, you do you do think of, you know, obviously it's been a big thing in in rugby. Then you have of late in soccer, they've started to talk about heading the ball and what sort of damage that can do. And yet, at the same time, nobody has any problem <laughs> with what's going on in boxing, or you, you don't hear any as much concern at all at all. And well, yeah, well, look, sorry, the way sorry, even to interrupt, and, and I'll come to Rory on this. Mm. Rory and I do rugby slots all the time in the show. I've talked about concussion in rugby like a gazillion times yeah. more than I have in boxing. Because like if you talk about it in boxing, the only conclusion you can reach really is, well, the sport has to almost be cancelled and stopped. Yeah, because as you said, the, the way he phrases it here, here is when sports like American football, American football, rugby and soccer uh, are forced into addressing the concussion issue. Um, and then it has in, in boxing, the one sport where competitors are actively trying to inflict a concussion on their opponent. There is no ultimate governing power. Um, I mean, look, like the stories, the, 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 the kind of harrowing stories that, that you're going to read in this book are absolutely inevitable. I mean, how could it be any other way? Yeah. Yeah, there's no surprise. Like they do towards the end and Tris Dixon certainly says he hopes this book isn't like uh, let's abolish boxing type thing. He says, I hope not. Boxing still saves a lot more lives than it takes. It has saved an awful lot of lives and has done so in the most deprived of areas. It gives trainers a sense of purpose in their life. Having a boxing club in the area gives kids a sense of structure that they might not otherwise have. The sport does have a lot of good. It remains a path out of poverty and trauma for thousands of men and women around the world. And you know, um, a number of solutions are proffered. So like an upper age limit for professional boxers, young fighters restricted to body shots only until they're 14. He talks to Mickey Ward in the book, who we would know from the movie The Fighter, if you don't know Mickey Ward from his fighting. And he says there's no way to stop concussions, but you could potentially do, you know, minimize it in sparring. So he reckons a huge amount of the punishment he took was in sparring. So maybe there's an area there, like certainly in NFL and rugby, Rory, it's contact training which is a big issue and like rugby in particular, I know, and NFL actually made huge strides when it comes to what's done Monday to Friday and then what happens in, this, in the game, I guess, happens. I guess there's an area for boxing there to clean up sparring. Yeah, I think the four, three or four kind of solutions he offers are that the sparring is one and also uh, an upper age limit. So we don't have this grotesque uh, specter of fighters of old coming back out of retirement at the age of, I don't know, 50 to kind of to fight and, you know, do for just inflict further damage on themselves for one last purse um to stop anything above the neck at uh underage level i think it's up to under 14s um is what he suggests and that probably has parallels in football where there's a suggestion that you know kids shouldn't be heading the ball uh up until a certain age um 
so he does proper some some solutions that that could be you know I think I think the the sport itself within the the ring on the night it's going to be very hard to to cut out concussion for all the reasons you've outlined and I think the the other thing he draws attention to is the fact that it's so loosely regulated and has so many different uh, regulating governing bodies and that if you get banned by the WBO you can go and fight for someone else potentially you know under under another banner and you know we you've, you've spoken before joe about all the different shady characters who were involved at the top end of boxing as well and you know he, like you you would wonder how much they care about the people who are involved as long as they get paid at the end of it it's yeah he, he uses the phrase wild west and that's the way i've always viewed boxing from afar it's not a sport i really enjoy watching it never has been um because of the violence of it and mm. i mean that might be a strange thing for a rugby correspondent to say but there is a, a naked violence to the boxing and, a, and and that just simply, you know, when you strip it back, that simplicity, they are trying to knock someone out um, that I find t- tough tough to watch. It would be the same at UFC. So um, but it's a very, very good piece and a very thought-provoking piece. And, you know, the parallels with rugby are, are, are obvious. So, you know, it's something that I read a lot about and talked to you about mm. a, a fair bit. I mean, it, it's just another sport grappling with this issue. Um, but it seems quite uh, an extreme example of it as well. It does. I mean banning it or talk of banning it I mean human nature is such that it will continue and do you want to drive it underground where it's completely unregulated I don't think you do we're in an interesting space at the moment with so many sports you mentioned the kids heading the soccer balls or just heading soccer balls full stop Shane rugby it's a constant issue boxing here at the moment and regulations are trying to make it safer and yet it's like this really macabre live experiment whereby rugby, football, boxing, they'll try and change the regulations for this generation. And there's almost a wait and see guinea pig element. So will the ne- will this generation in 40 years have problems? Well, we have to wait 30, 40 years to find out at which point we'll change the regulations again. It's kind of this uncomfortable live experiment, as I said. I think really the only solution for a lot of these sports is the kids have to be protected uh, to the nth degree and then informed adult consent, you know? You know the risks. You take your chances. Free. It's a free world. Free countries. Uh, go for it. I think that's Shane. The only way, you know, we can all feel okay about it. But then, you're still watching it, and maybe you don't feel so good about watching it when you know the consequences. I, I certainly, uh, it's never far from my mind watching a rugby match. I have to say. Yeah. Look, like you've you've said, it, it it's it's really not to to go having a a, a battering at, at at boxing because in in so many ways it it is such a wonderful sport and and does do so much for for people particularly you know such kind of people coming from diverse backgrounds and that kind of stuff. I know you know talking to to Billy Walsh as you've done in the past as well yourselves that you know it, it it's been the main thing in in so many people's lives that has kept their life going in the right direction when it could have gone in a very different direction mm. but it, it does all have to be weighed up against the kind of stuff that we're reading about here in in, in yeah. this article you know i, I must talk yeah, to the boxer car- about it I, I wonder is it even sorry rory come in after me here i, I wonder can you spar in a productive way without having to be aware that headshots could happen do you know what i mean like we you, in theory this might be fine but we might talk to a boxer and says well i mean I have to prepare to take headshots. If I'm not taking them in training, then I'm not prepared to take them. I need to get used to dodging them. Who knows? It may, so it, it may be only aspirational to say, well, you can't throw headshots in training. Yeah, and, and rugby players would say that they need to learn to tackle, you know, that you can't just go out sure. there and having not done it in training. I mean, I was just going to say as a counterpoint to all this, I've read recently Don McRae's book in Sunshine or in Shadow and the oh, yeah. work in of boxing in Northern Ireland at the time. I mean, mm. you couldn't come away from that book without thinking this is an incredibly powerful force for good in, in, in a lot of communities 
the my own experience of rugby playing it for nearly 20 years i mean i i would have got a few headaches at times after games but the amount of positive experience i had playing the game i, I would i would massively be in, you know in favor of yeah. sorry I, I would be very have a very positive reflection of my own time playing it so i mean we there are massive physical benefits to playing all these sports and what's the alternative if we ban them all i mean there are it's a deeper conversation, but this is very galling. And, and you do, when it is the human brain, you, you do have to be very, very careful what you're doing. So, yeah, um, it's it, this is really important. I think this piece and this book sounds very. I don't know if if I if I look look at it as a book that I'd like to be have as my bedtime mm. reading before every night. <laughs> but um, I hope the right people are reading it. Mm. If you know what I mean. Well, we'll t- we must we'll get Tris Dixon on the show and chat to him about it in due course. Uh, so a few other bits and pieces. Hey, geez, you want danger. Uh, Rory, you mentioned so Nico Roach, who really has probably been doing a diary, I would think, for a decade at this stage, and it's still always a really interesting read, or so often an interesting read. His account on page 14 in the Sunday Independent, it's a relatively short piece, but his account of their ride through a dark tunnel is fairly harrowing. I mean, (laughs) you sort of forget, obviously, so when we go through tunnels, we, we have our headlights and a lot of tunnels are lit up. The cyclists seem to go down a tunnel with no headlights that wasn't lit up. Yeah, I once had this experience myself. I got in a rental car that I didn't know how to turn the lights on, and it, I only realised when I got into the tunnel right. <laughs> somewhere in France. And, and like this one, it was uh, it had no lights on, but thankfully it came out the other side. I mean, yeah, Nico's brilliant. I mean, th- this column is long running, but he never see, never fails to bring insight to and and a, what more can you ask for from a columnist? But to take you inside the peloton and what the experience is like and himself and. I think Jared Cromwell helps him out with it. Um, right. it, it it's just really, really um, honest always. You know, it's, 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 it's always a really good account. And this this account of going through a tunnel, like it starts off, the, the column, like you don't know what drama is coming. It's just kind of an account of his day. But his day involves, um, I'll just read it because I don't think I could do it justice. It's after 40 kilometers, we went through a one kilometer long unlit tunnel, which is okay if you're driving a car and you can turn your lights on. But it's not great when you're riding a bike at 60 kilometers per hour and riding a couple of inches away from 175 other blind guys doing it at the same speed. In a situation like that, all you can do is lift up your sunglasses, hold your line, don't touch the brakes, and hope for the best. While there was some daylight for the first 200 metres, there was a section in the middle where it was pitch black and pretty dangerous. Somewhere ahead of me, I heard a scrape of metal, of carbon fibre and metal off the ground. I knew there was a crash. I couldn't break through, though, in case I caused another one, so I just blindly rode on in the direction of the light. And then it just gets a bit brighter and, and, and he comes out of the shadows and everything's fine. But mm. like that couple of seconds must have been harrowing. Yes. And it goes back to, I think I listened to last week's pay-per-view. There was the Paul Kimmich piece about the, I can't remember the guy's name, the guy who crashed yeah. and, and didn't remember it. I mean, like you talk about boxing, you talk about rugby, like cycling's crazy as crazy. well. Crazy, like yeah. Horse racing as well, you know, you kind of, the accounts of jockeys have fallen. I mean, a lot of these sports are mad, but like the, they're... Uh, um, it's just incredible. It's just it's it, there's not much more I can say to to liven it up. It's just uh, yeah, and it's a day to day. That's he goes on with the rest of his race. You know the rest the rest of the race happens. He's a chat with a guy at the end about how he's retiring at the end of it. Nico doesn't seem particularly bothered by the fact that he's just been through this terrifying oh, moment. Boring, but they're made different. We'd, yeah, be, do- we'd yeah. be dining out in that story for 10 years. I mean, this is, yeah, this is just uh, done. So I make it if there's a bit of daylight for the first and last 200 meters of the tunnel, and it's a kilometer long. That is 600 metres of pitch black going flat out and just holding your line and keeping your pace steady and then hearing a crash ahead and just hoping you don't plough into it. Pretty phenomenal. Yeah, that, that doesn't sound like fun, uh, Joe. <laughs> <laughs> um, c- 
can I uh, I know you picked out a few rugby pieces I just want to mention Tony Griffin he's always a character that I found really interesting and kind of followed from afar uh, Tony Griffin Claire Hurler I think lots of you will be aware of him in various guises it's 11 years since he wrote Screaming at the Sky that was his um, it was well it was, an, it was not sort of an autobiography but it was prompted by the death of his father he was Claire Hurler at the time he was coming to the end of his uh, Claire career and he went on a 7,000 kilometre charity cycle across Canada and had a total breakdown in many ways in his mental health and uh, wrote the book about the experience and really amazing and then he set up SOAR a brilliant charity I think inspired by a similar one over in Australia and that was working with teenagers and he was chief executive of that and uh, he's he, he's left that behind because, frankly, he said he was spending less time working with the teenagers and more time trying to find donors with a social conscience. He said the constant generating of three quarters of a million a year, waking up first thing in the morning thinking I've 12 staff to play, it spun him out. Uh, he was thinking of going down the kind of coaching corporate route, you know, CEOs and all that business. And he decided not to do that. And uh, he's approaching nearly 40. His wife, Kira on maternity leave with their second child, uh, mortgage, all the usual taxes of early middle life and he was talking with Siobhan early a confidant of his and she said if money was no object what would you do and he said I would write I'd start writing and then she said well that's what we're going to do so he's written a book uh, The Teenager's Book of Life and I suspect it's based on his experiences with SOAR and working with teenagers for seven years and hearing their concerns and what's going on with them and so that book is out now I guess that's the reason for the interview here with Dennis Walsh and uh, he's doing a little bit of work with the Kildare footballers at the moment, Jack O'Connor there. But what just really grabbed me, and I, I just love people who have the courage to live life on their own terms and to do interesting things and often kind of feel, God, I wish I had the balls to go and do this. I just don't have it in me. I'd be too, <laughs> I'd be too afraid of uh, the future and bills coming in and how you fund life and all that kind of stuff. So uh, Griffin is committed to writing more and he's exploring where that might take him. So this autumn... His plan is to replace his smartphone with an old brick of a device and distance himself from social media. He has identified a place in the countryside close to where he lives where the mobile phone signal is wobbly and weak and his intention is to work there for a year. He read Walden by Henry David Thoreau, the 19th century American naturalist philosopher who lived for a while in the woods because he wished to live deliberately and front only the essential facts of life. Uh, without immersing himself as Thoreau did, Griffin wants to take a dip. He says, I'm addicted to the dopamine hit of social media as much as most people. But I want to go, I want to read, I want to think, I want to write. I don't think you can do that when your phone is pinging in your pocket. I want to see what will happen. Will I be able to discover some good stuff in there that I can write about? Will my life be better or will I miss some stuff? I'm just really curious about what would happen if you were more connected to yourself and the natural world around you. I was always curious about what makes people tick and what makes me tick. It's funny how it's evolved. In 08, I cycled across Canada thinking, about, thinking that it would give me answers about my father's passing and soothed some of the grief that I was going through quietly, but it didn't. It only gave me more questions. In some ways, at this stage of my life, I have more questions than ever before, but they're on another level and I'm so much more solid in myself now. End quote. Uh, I bagsy, and if you two are Rory, you try. I bagsy in six months. I I want to do the interview with him down in uh, his shack um, on the west coast of Ireland in a couple of months when he's settled into life there. Um, amazing. I just find someone like that so interesting. The road less travelled, forty years of age now. I still don't know how he's paying the bills, <laughs> but he's going for it. So um, best of luck. I, I I think God, we all have that kind of urge at times, don't we? To 
get away, leave it all behind, do some thinking, do some reading, do some writing, seeing what almost seeing what happens. I mean, maybe you come back after three months gone. I was bored, silly, and I didn't have any profound thoughts. But who knows? I threw that out there to both of you because I wasn't sure what I get a, a long <laughs> silence of um, you're having to break no. down yourself. <laughs> no, no, look, he's he, he, he obviously look, he's, he's he strikes me as the kind of fella who would be quite comfortable alone with himself, to be honest with you, Joe. You know, a lot of people couldn't do it, but I don't think too many of us have gone and read Walden either. So he, he's a different sort of a fella, that's for sure. Um, but it is interesting, like you do when I think of people who want to take on a challenge or do something like that, I, I, I do think of somebody who's a little bit out there anyway. And I like the fact that he says, I'm, I'm addicted to the, to the dopamine hit um, from social media as much, as much as most people, you know? So he's, you know, he is kind of, you know, he does live the same life the rest of us. He is checking the phone. He is going to the phone and to, to be willing to try and, and go and, and cut that off. It's, it's fair play to him. It's a big challenge, but, um, I can imagine he would be very, very good in a role as, as performance coach. I know he did do it with, with, with Dalo before with the Dublin Hurlers, but it'll be interesting to see what the, the Kildare footballers get out of him this year for sure. But uh, look, any man who's quoting lines from Janice Joplin's me and Bobby McGee to his players is, is doing well by my book anyway. <laughs> mm. I don't know if you listened to the High Performance podcast with Johnny Wilkinson. Um, yeah. I got it said all to me during the week, but yeah. I found huge parallels between uh, Johnny Wilkinson's philosophy is a little bit crazy to me but like there was parts of it like it was kind of an extreme extreme level of presentism that yet you, you always live in the moment mm. and i think that's what you know um he's getting at with that janice joplin quote the freedom is just another word for nothing left to lose that's what i said to myself you've nothing left to fear nothing to fear you've nothing to lose i wanted to hold on to that feeling because it's liberating and that kind of has parallels with what wilkinson was talking about last week and maybe this is the kind of the next kind of i don't know sports like just sports psychology high performance thing of that like you know stop stop the struggle and live in this moment and be present at every moment i, I don't know but it was mm. it was very interesting that two things that i either listened to or read this week had very similar kind of themes in them that um from two obviously high performancing sorry, high performancing uh, people who have performed to a high level but who obviously think about themselves an awful lot and have a a huge amount of self-analysis in their lives which is something you know i i don't particularly have and maybe i should but um, you got to break yourself down and go quite deep to to come to those conclusions. Yeah, but I mean, Jesus, we're wasting our lives on social media. It's just, <laughs> it's so so pointless and grim. Sometimes, like, I, I go through phases where I don't tweet, and then I I go through some phases where I I tweet for a few days, and I think, what am I doing? Like, what? This is embarrassing. What am I actually doing here? Uh, but it's so addictive. It's so addictive. I I tried to get one of those Nokia thirty two tens, which are back in. Vogue as the only way to break the habit, and then uh, they, it doesn't. They didn't have WhatsApp. I sort of think you sort of do need WhatsApp, you know. But if they if they can manage to hold WhatsApp, then I'm all in. Anyway, uh, I like. I, so, how much time are you spending on Twitter every day, Shane? Be honest. Yeah, I'd be. I wouldn't be a big man for tweeting, Joe. But I would be. Yeah, I would be on it a hell of a lot. I, you know this. I don't know. I just can't shake this sense. Why do I always feel like I have to know everything straight away? Like it, it'll make no difference to me if I find out in two or three hours' time. Like it'll literally make no difference to me. And yet, there's this. Oh, just reach the phone. God, God knows what I could have missed now if I haven't checked Twitter in the last ten minutes. It is. You're right. You know, it's it's so bad, and yet it's hard to shake. You know. Mm. Where are you on that scale, Rory? 
Oh, ridiculous. Um, yeah. I'm try like I try. I mean, you know, when I'm off, I try and uninstall it off my phone, but I still pick up my phone, click the link to where it was before I uninstalled it, without even thinking of it. I just pick up my phone <laughs> and my hand yeah. goes to where Twitter used to be, and I'm just mindlessly. Sorry, this is therapy at this stage, but like, you know, you're mindlessly scrolling when things are going on around you. And I notice with people around me as well where they're not actually. There was a study in the Gar that was published last week. It was covered in the Guardian about how it's become people's home. And when they're actually on their phones, they're no longer in the room with you. They've gone home to their phones. It's really interesting and quite yeah. uh, distressing, really. Because, you know, when someone's not there anymore, like that they've just, totally. you know, they get a ping off their WhatsApp and they're reading through a thread of people who, like, they haven't seen in 10 years, but they suddenly really want to know what they have to say about or what link they've sent or what funny video. Yeah, it's pretty pretty grim but yeah as a journalist it's very hard to not be honest well that's i mean so. that is that is ultimately the problem yeah i mean in our profession you sort of have to be on top of things all the time and almost see how the, they the evolve one, you know yeah the one thing i've definitely tried to do joe is if i'm sitting down to watch as like last night cork and tape or, or the fa cup final yeah. i just have to put out with my arms reach because i mean you know how you're meant to be looking at this thing for enjoyment or for analysis or possibly even for work purposes and if the phone is near you you're not going to take in half of what's going on in the bloody match like you're just no. not but like the banal conversations you have with just mere mortal human beings in your life can't compete with the offering of the internet you know what i mean like <laughs> i i'd be i'd be under no illusion that i'm more interesting than the internet like if i was uh, if i was my wife i'd be on the internet too but it's just it's just uh, it's just so damaging yeah i don't know i don't it's 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 um I think a lot of people are trying to rebel against it and realizing how addicted they all are. I've done that thing as well where you delete it so I can only get in with Safari and I've put in the verification so that you have to text the code to the phone and type it in just to make the whole thing unenjoyable. So my brain will start to associate the urge to go on with like, oh, I have to get the code, I have to do this. But anyway, I've, sorry. I've only managed to go as far as putting the three, screen, three screens to the right, Joe. It doesn't... Okay. Uh, this slow me down massively though well listen Tony Griffin is going for it so I, I applaud him and, and look forward to seeing how he gets on in uh, the next couple of months so uh, one or two last very quick pieces before we begin to wrap up uh, there's a, there are a few hurling uh, bits and bobs Michael Dignan I, you know I sort of agreed with uh, Dignan here now look it's one game it was last week he, the game lacks bite was the point he was making about a match a lot of us I suspect watched last week between Limerick versus Tip I didn't see them I, you, you said you were watching Tip Cork last night Shane I didn't see it I was what kind mm. of FA Cup and then some other bits but uh, so the headline of Michael Dignan's piece is maybe I'm a dinosaur but modern game lacks bite of old and he said watching Limerick tip last weekend opening around the National League uh, something struck me although players nowadays extremely fit mobile skillful that bit of bite was missing from the game there was uh, little to get the blood pumping bit of aggression legitimate aggression not dirty players missing from the game now 20 points apiece neither side really threatening the goal the whole thing just left me a bit cold uh, I'll be called a dinosaur, he said, and then talks about a lot of the good changes. But he said, um, watching the game, the inside forward line retreating to concede the short puck outs, the lack of engagement until the ball reached a certain area. There's a flurry of short passing before the ball's finally delivered. It was all about the tactical setups and the game plans, which is intriguing in its own way, but it lacked so much bite. In the end, 20 points apiece, no serious shots and go. I kind of, uh, I felt that way about the game last week, Shane, but I just gave it a bit of a free pass because opening round, and to be fair, I suppose, when you get into the teeth of championship, I don't think that's true of a lot of games, but uh, certainly a notable trend in the game that you're having these games now, which are almost um, more tactical than, than, as Michael says, full of bite. 
Yeah, look, it, 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 it is going to be a really, really interesting year for Hurling Joe because, I mean, having been the holy grail of, of Irish sport that was just completely free from any criticism whatsoever for, for forever and a day, really, um, it's coming under a bit of a battering at the moment. Um, and there's two, there's two angles that the battering is coming from. One is rules, and there's a lot of talk about rules, and, and, and I know... Um, who is it? Dermot Crow had a, had a very good piece on the rules as well. But but the other angle that it's getting a bit of battering from is is coaching and tactics and analysis and over analysis and and all of that kind of stuff. And I suppose that's what Michael is 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 touching on here. Um, and look, there's two. I suppose I'd be looking at it with two hats. I'd be looking at it as as a viewer and like it's impossible to argue otherwise. Like it's impossible not to say that last weekend's game wasn't as enjoyable maybe as what we've been used to over the last few years last night's game wasn't as enjoyable as what we've been used to over the last few years and that is probably in a large part down to the tactics that the teams are trying to employ at the moment um from the flip side i'm i'm going to be over our club this year in our club championship year and i'm loving the analysis and i'm loving analyzing you know, what are the teams trying to do and why are they trying to do it most importantly? And, you know, could we implement that or is that something we should try and bring to our game? And even the build up to the game last night on RTE um, with, jo- with Joanne Cantwell, Don Logue and, and Brendan Cummins was was like, you know, a lot of people, I do understand a lot of people would want to turn off when they got that heavy on the tactics and the analysis and all that. But I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I really, I really, really did. But Look, at the same time, there's no doubt it, it's creating a very, very different game. And you do fear, you know, you do fear for the first time possibly ever that you are going to be heading into a championship where maybe as a spectator sport, the game is 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 not going to be as enjoyable. And, but, and what's, what's an example of, in your view, and so it's interesting you're watching these games very closely now with a coaching hat on, of the modern game at its most bland. Is it like short puck out two three short passes ball up to kind of somewhere 40 50 meters out to hand and then popped over the bar and no real engagement or fire in the midst of it is that kind of the the appalling vista you could be headed to yeah 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 i think that's it and that that is the point that michael tries to make uh, as well in the point in the in the argument but like you know you talk again and they kind of overlap with the rule changes and the amount of freeze that are going on at the moment i mean our our county hurlers leash hurled dublin yesterday and and, and donald burke for dublin scored scored 18 freeze um joe and, and i mean he, he put two handy enough ones wide as well to be honest with you um or maybe it was 18 points 16 of, of which were freeze and that's that's feeding into it all as well but i mean i think there's an arg- a lot of people will make the argument that the reason the tact teams are going so tactically heavy is for coaches and managers to try and justify their existence, right? And I suppose people my like big book, people like me, exactly. So naturally enough, people like me are going to disagree with that because to me, like at the end of the day, the, the overriding thing, no matter what, no matter what, what does a manager or a coach need to do? They need to win the game, right? And if people who are saying drive the ball long and give them more freedom and just let them play off the cuff and just let them do what they were doing 10 years ago. I mean, if, if managers genuinely thought, well, if that's how we're going to win the game, well, then of course that's what they do. Of course that's what they do. 100% that's what they do. Like, it, it, which is more important? To look to look great because you're using so much tactics and so much, 
you know, of that, or to win a game. Winning a game will always trump it. So if you thought not using tactics would win you the game, then you just throw the tactics in the bin. I'll give you, I'll give you one point, right, that kind of argues against, and by and large, I, 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 I really like what Michael writes, right? But Michael uses the line here, the faster you can work the ball into the full forward, into the forward line, sorry, into the forward line, the better. Okay, I'm lucky enough. I'm in a WhatsApp group with 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 um kind of performance analysts, some of the top performance analysts in in the GEA, right? And they make some brilliant points. And a conversation started up this morning, and there's there's one guy in it, um, Sean. I can't quite remember Sean. Sorry, Sean Flynn. And he threw up a graphic. He has analysed the 17, 18, and 19 championships, right? And 33% of balls that were played from inside the team's own 45, they managed to retain. So two thirds of the time, when they're playing that long ball that apparently we're supposed to do to get it into the forwards as quickly as possible, two thirds of the time, the opposition are coming away with the ball. Okay, so naturally enough, teams and managers and 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 Brendan Cummins in particular showed a really good example of it last night. He was actually analysing Limerick, even though it wasn't Limerick that were playing, of why they use the shorter ball, how they use the shorter ball, and how they've made it more effective. So I, you know, I do. I understand that we're maybe gone, you know, we're gone from almost no tactics to a huge amount of tactics in a very, very short period of time. And maybe that adjustment period hasn't been long enough. Yeah. Where people can get, uh, no, they're really interesting points. And then I suppose where people can feel it's like learned off by road type hurling is when sometimes there might be a complete mismatch in the full forward line. And you might have a a forward who's got the better, best of his man. And, you know, he could win four or five out of six out of ten balls. But he's not been used enough. You know, and, and it's like, oh, you're sticking to the game plan and actually you're not reading the room enough. Yeah, but, but I think any half-decent manager or coach will, will, will spot that. Will spot and they that, will vary, yeah. will, will vary away from the normal tactics and they will go with that. And I mean, the other point in relation to just that one line that Michael uses is, and I get where he's coming from by mm. and large at this point, but I mean, if the half-back line is dropped to just in front of the full-back line and the midfield have dropped to where the half-back line is, well, sending that ball into the forwards early it is only inevitably going to have one outcome. Yeah, yeah. So you need to, to be cleverer about it. But at the same time, I do agree that it, it is a little bit worrying as to how entertaining just from that blood and thunder side of things, which at the end of the day is is arguably the most attractive part well, of the game. I mean, we're, we're like, and, and the blood and thunder and like we're all raised on goals. If you, you know, really think of the goals down the years that have changed games and electrified Crow Park. I mean, that is hurling when it's kind of at its most vivid and wonderful, you know. Um, clock is really against us now. So um, if we could do very quick mention of the Camogie piece and the hurling pieces. You, you picked out Sean McGoldrick in the Sunday World on Camogie, Shane. I, I did, yeah. And look, I'll give it to you very quickly, do, Joe. Yeah. He 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 gave he, the the opening line he gives nearly summarizes it all. He says there are, he he quotes uh, Vladimir Lenin. There are decades where nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. So it's it it's been that kind of week for Camogie Joe. Absolutely mm. no doubt because there's been two huge things. First is the equality of funding, obviously, which has been struck is is just such such a huge step forward for the game. It really is. They've got a, a really good interview. Um, in here with Heather Cooney from uh, of the Galway Camogie team, and obviously she has two brothers involved in 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 the equivalent with the men's game. So she's more than anybody she's or I is extremely open to just how poorly they've been treated in compare comparison to their male counterparts. So that's that's been really really huge for them. Um, look, the Camogie Association tend to be their own worst enemy at times. There's no doubt. And then you had this fixture issue over over the last couple of weeks, which was absolutely crazy. I 
I spoke to a friend of mine yesterday who's heavily, heavily involved in camogie. And, and just to give you an idea of why stuff like this happens, he's over his club's camogie team. Um, and when he went in going crazy as to how uh, the latter option, the one that eventually was defeated, um, was only marginally defeated, he found out from his club that his own club had actually voted for the other option, the mm. one that he was detesting and giving out about. Mm. Um, so the communication lines are, are horrendous. But it, it's great to see steps forward. It, I, I'll point out one other thing on it as well, Joe, is the I, I would have to give great kudos to, to, to Littlewoods. Um they have a really, really good advert running alongside that piece. And they also have a full page advert running alongside a similar piece. I think it's in the Times or the Indoor, one of them, um, where they've got this camogie is built on trailblazers and legends. However, 89% of the population cannot name a current camogie player. Littlewoods Ireland is 100% committed to changing that. And then a great picture of Heather Cooney beside it with Heather's signature underneath it. I think it's a really, really clever advertising campaign by them. Fair play to them as well to back up the piece, you know? Mm, yeah. Rory, on the rugby front, I know there's uh, Neil Francis and there's Brendan Fanning and the Sunday Independent. Rory Keane is talking lines and Gatland in the mail. Anything you want to jump on? It's all lines. I mean, you'd never know that the lines are six weeks away rather than, uh, you know, we've still got an entire tournament to finish, but nobody cares about it. So it's uh, lines, lines, lines. I think Brendan Fanning's piece about the mental challenge that they face over in South Africa in a bubble um, mm. and the idea to bring a sports psychologist with him uh, was the most interesting angle that I saw. Uh, he speaks to a sports psychologist, um, Dr. Kate Kirby, who is the head of uh, performance psychology at Sport Ireland, about the fact that like, if you're not picked for the test team and you're stuck in a bubble in South Africa for yeah. three weeks, like how do you deal with that mentally? And, and Joe Marler spoke last week about how he struggled on tour and the fact that rugby is, what does he call it, a an invasion sport and it's a whole... A group of alpha males who all think they're the best at what they do and they're all about invading each other's space and suddenly they're part of the same team and they're supposed to be working towards the same goal but how do the like this what 37 on the tour that means uh 12 of them won't be in the match day squad how do they deal with it if they can't go for a beer or they can't go on safari you know you're in you're stuck in johannesburg which is at times a grim enough place to be if you can't go out and do stuff it's even worse here in a hotel so that, I thought uh, it was an interesting I, way of looking oh, at it no it was really interesting and um, Paul O'Connell was in the show during the week and he was just he said he was looking at the schedule what jumped out to him are the absence of midweek games really for almost the second half of the tour so in effect you could go out there and not make the test team be an alpha male as you said be really disappointed by the whole thing and then you just have to spend three four weeks stuck in a hotel with no chance of playing like it sounds like a tour you wouldn't want to be on in that situation with your family at home a lot of time in a hotel room asking yourself what the hell am I doing here yeah because I mean four years ago I was in New Zealand and it wasn't uncommon to bump into the midweekers in a restaurant uh, or a bar as the tour went on because they they knew that like by Monday or Tuesday they knew they were playing on Saturday so yeah. they just had to kind of make themselves busy turn up for training the next day and like if in a normal year you could go shark, you know, if you're in Cape Town, you can go shark diving, you can head out to all sorts of really interesting places, but like most of that stuff won't be open and you have to protect the bubble because if you can't, you can't go out at night out and then bring COVID into the camp the next day, even if they're all vaccinated, that they can't be seen to do that. Like, look at the, the furore of the barbarians game, um, mm. thing. So, if you know, you know, COVID brings this whole thing down and it's found out that the players went out and brought it into the camp, like, that's going to be a massive scandal. So, they're under pressure to keep the whole thing going. God, it doesn't sound like a lot of fun. No, it really doesn't. It really doesn't. Like, I was even wondering, like, will Gatlin turn around to a few towards the end and say, look, if you want to head off, you can go. 
You know, because like you're just keeping around to hold bags and go back to the hotel room. But uh, I guess you can't do that with the constant possibility of injury. And also the geography six scandal of last time when you brought a few in for a couple of weeks and then sent them home before the test series yeah. and that caused an unbelievable furore. So he he has the whole mystique of the lines to think of. But I think people have to be realistic about what COVID is all about. But then if you're a player and you seem to be dismissed when the business end gets going, like would you accept that offer or would you kind of grimly hang on for two more know. weeks? I always think of um, Brian O'Driscoll when he stayed out in 05 after dislocating his shoulder and subsequently then in 09 when he was concussed in the second test just got out of town um, I'd yeah. say that spoke volumes I think I think you can read into his experience in 05 and, and why you get out of there O'Connell stuck around in 2013 mm. um, when he was injured yeah. so yeah and I ghosted Rob Kearney's column in 2013 and, and he didn't get next he was injured going into the tour and Lee Halfpenny was kicking from the machine. start was yeah I mean that was a pretty tough job because Rob wasn't in great form and was you know was was struggling with it all and I got a bit of an insight into how tough it is for a player when you're not in the mix and especially a player of his style, stature who started the two of the three tests and started in the other one um, off the bench four years previously like if everyone who got selected last week thinks they're going to be in the test team and thinks they're going to be kicking the win and drop goal or winning the the scrum penalty in the last minute in, in Johannesburg to win the whole thing so it's a bit of a kick. Um, if you're not part of that and what do you do when you get a bit of a disappointment when you want to go and see your family drown your sorrows whatever yeah, your, yeah. Your, your poison is and if you can't do that and you're just going to be around the hotel well that's not going to be great for the starters either because they're looking at you moping around the whole time so can you imagine if they, lose, if, they, if they lose the first two tests I mean good. Uh, only so many casino nights that'll get you through that one uh, right we got to go I suspect we'll be reading interviews in about four months time about you know my miserable Lions tour um, that kind of stuff Roy O'Connor of the Irish Independent many thanks great to have you on and Shane Keegan as always pleasure thanks fellas cheers lads cheers lads The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball That was an OTB Podcast Network presentation 